Ain't God good all the time. This morning, before we get started, I'd like to do something, and I'm hoping they don't know anything about it, but we're going to surprise them anyway. We've got a couple in our church that has spent many years on the mission field, and they've just retired at the first of this, of of December, what month we in? September is what it is. They retired completely, and we had been trying to figure out something to do for them and so forth, and I called the office of the place they were at. There they are back there. So I just, y'all don't go anywhere. It, uh, the, where they were members of, it's, it's called Ethnos 360s, but it was also founded in 1942 as New Tribes Mission. And for 22 years, Ann and Gary Laver have been missionaries down there. I know their heart's desires to go back to Venezuela, but it just looks like right now it's not possible. It's so dangerous down there. And so it doesn't look like that's possible. So would you all come up here a minute, please? Ethnos 360, the mission program they went out from, uh, I talked to one of the guys and so forth, and he asked me, he said, we don't have a representative up in northeast Oklahoma, I think the closest one, says, I don't think he can get there. Would you, all refer, would you all give it to him? And I like to present, let me just read this to you. To Gary and Ann Labor, in appreciation for 22 years of faithful service, Ethnos 360, founded in 1942 as New Tribes Ministry. And it's got the date of September 2018 when they, when they retired officially. We'd like to present that to you all on behalf of them. And we're glad to have them at our church. If you've been around them, they do a whole lot of work, and we don't want to let them go. But I know they desire to go back to Venezuela, but I, I guess that's not changed yet, has it? <laughs> but it, it may. But we just wanted to present that to them. It's from them. And so, of course, just we got, we got to present it. So let's pray together as we do this. Dear God, we thank you, Lord, for both the labors and what they mean to us. And, Lord, we just uh, thank you for the work that they did for 22 years reaching out, leading people to Christ, and seeing them baptized and changed and their lives changed and so on and so forth. Lord, we give them thanks for this, of what the years they spent. And, Lord, we just ask that you would bless from here on out each one of them. Lord, we just ask that you go with us. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. One other thing we're going to do is uh, I know they probably wouldn't want it, so we're going to take up a love offering to go to this ministry that they were part of and so at the end of service today, there'll be our, our deacons will be at the doors, and it, every penny of it goes to the it's Ethnos 360. That's it, isn't it? There's two different names, so that's why I'm getting confused here. But it's Ethnos 360, and so the the will go to go to this organization, but in their names after today. So stick around for that part too as we end our service. Appreciate y'all. We love having y'all with us. <laughs> Now, I've got to tell you, they go see grandkids pretty often down in Houston, and I really had to coordinate to see when that's going to be gone, because I thought, sure as the world, if I plan it, they'll be gone that week, but it's, it worked out great, and we're glad to have them in our church and be a part of us and just to, to uh, be here with us for this time anyway. They may go back to Venezuela before too long, but it, uh, I'm sorry, no time, no time soon, that's right, yeah. I heard something, I didn't see it. Oh, they're not allowed to leave. 
That says Hannah, huh? So Hannah says they can't leave, so they're locked in there. So <laughs> if you will, get your Bibles and turn with me to Romans chapter 1, verses 7 through 15. I want to talk today about what is in the heart of a believer. What is in the heart of a believer? Paul gives us very good impressions here as he writes these, this first passage out of the book of Romans, uh, chapter 1. Would you stand with me as we read these together? Paul, a bondservant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, separated to the gospel of God, which he promised before through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his son, Jesus Christ our Lord, who was born of the seed of David according to the flesh and declared to be the Son of God with power according to the spirit of holiness. By the resurrection from the dead, through him we have received grace and and apostleship for obedience to the faith among all nations, for his name among whom you also are, are called of Jesus Christ. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Dear God, we thank you, Lord, for this time you've given us, and Lord, for this passage we just read. And now, Lord, just go with us through the next few minutes as we just bring out your word, and Lord, let it be your word speaking and not mine by any means. That, Lord, we would just hear you speaking clearly to each and every one of us that's here today. Go with us. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Now, you can keep your finger on the place there because I want to go a little bit farther. But in verses 7 through 15, it says, To all who are in Rome, beloved of God, called to be saints. Now, a few weeks ago, I I used part of this passage. I used that passage right there, that verse right there. And it... uh, those two words in verse 7, to be saints, is not in the original text. And so the, how that should read is to all who are in Rome, beloved of God, saints, called saints. That's how it ought to be because that's, that's not in the original text. What difference does that make? What, what does that have to do? Well, it's gonna, I'm going to show you some things in a few minutes and just you'll see. But he goes on in this passage. Let's go to verse 15 or through 15, excuse me. Grace be to you and peace from our Lord, our Father and our Lord Jesus Christ. First, I thank God through Jesus Christ for all that your faith has spoken of throughout the whole world. For God is my witness, whom I will I serve with my spirit in the gospel of His Son without ceasing. I make mention of you always in my prayers, making request if by some means now at, a, at last I may find a way in the will of God to come to you. He's speaking to the Romans, remember. He wants to go to Rome and see the the Christians there. For I long to see you that I may impart to you a spiritual gift so that you may be established. That is, that I may be encouraged together with you by the mutual faith both of, of you and me. Now, I do not want you to be unaware, brethren, that I often planned to come to you but was hindered until now, that I might have some fruit among you also. Just as among the other Gentiles, I am a debtor, both the Greeks and the barbarians, both to the wise and the unwise. So as much as is in me, I am ready to preach the gospel to who to you who are in Rome also. Now, there was one little hindrance, and we'll touch on a little bit uh, later. But one thing was stopping Paul from going to Rome. I mean, he was ready. He wanted to meet these people. Now, he knew some of them, but he wanted to go meet these people. He wanted to meet this church. But there was one little problem he had. He was in jail for two years, and that sort of changed his plans. 
But he still had the desire to reach out to this church. And we'll see that a little bit farther here as we go on. But Paul is, in Romans chapter 1, is basically, let me set this up here. He's writing, a, it's very biographical. He's writing his story, basically what it is. Very personal, if you listen to the words he just said, and farther on. Paul is revealing his personality, revealing his heart to them. In fact, in the verses that today, we are going to find that there's personal pronouns, I, me, my, 17 times. Well, that's an awful lot for somebody to be talking about himself. But now watch what he does with this. He's, again, given an autobiographical essay to us, if you will. I haven't counted, but I would guess that he does, he uses that word 17 times. The re, doesn't use it that many times the rest of the book of Romans. So he's trying to make a point to us. He's trying to get something across to us. So here he is saying, I want you to see my heart. That's what he's doing. He's pouring out his heart to us. Today, as we talk about the heart of Apostle Paul, I want to ask you to consider what's in your heart. Have you ever thought about it? What's in your heart? Paul, I'm going to be asking the same question that he asked. What's in your heart? What is in the heart of a true believer? I know we all bring our Bibles to church. We all sing songs at church. We all do this. But that doesn't mean there's anything in your heart. What do we really have in our heart about this? Romans chapter 7 verse 15 tells us a lot of what we just read there. Uh, Again, he says, to all who in Rome, beloved of God, called, and it says in our text, to be saints. But again, let me emphasize, those two words are not in the, in the original Greek text. What it should say is, to all who in Rome, beloved of God, called saints. Now, I know I touched on this a few weeks ago, but if you're a child of God, if you've accepted Jesus Christ, if you're a Christian today, you are already a saint. You don't have to wait for it. You say, well, I don't feel too saintly some days. Neither do I. I don't act too saintly sometimes. But according to God's Word, which is the base of everything we stand on, we are already saints if you've accepted Jesus Christ. That's a signature statement for him right there. He always says, grace and peace to you. It's never peace and grace. Now, what's the importance of that? Why is that important? Because you never find God's peace until you find God's grace. There can't be God's peace in your heart until you find God's grace. You can mark out those words to be again. You're already a saint if you're a child of God. You already have what you need to get to heaven. And that's being accepted by Jesus Christ as a Christian, as a believer, ever whatever you, term you want to use it. But we're already saints. I don't know if that's good news or bad news because I don't act like a saint a whole lot of times. But I are one just the same. It doesn't matter what some of y'all think about me. I still am a saint. So, Anyway, he goes on. You can mark out the words to me because we're already saints. I emphasize that because there's a real misconception in the world today about who the saints are. Many people were sometimes called saints. And we even know people that inside the church, some sweet little lady that just gives everything she's got. We just, oh, she's such a saint. She's already a saint. 
if you know Jesus Christ. A saint is not somebody who is dead and has been exalted by the Catholic Church. A saint is somebody who has accepted Jesus Christ and made it real in their life. Paul is not writing to dead Christians. He's writing to people who are living and breathing. They were alive. We're saints today. When you hear the song, when the saints go marching in, I hope to be in that number. Well, if you're a saint, you are in that number. You're already designated that way. That's like saying St. Mike, St. Charlie. I would say St. Rocky, but that just doesn't fit. But it just, <laughs> but it's, we're saints together because, not because of what we've done, what we've accomplished. We're saints together because of who God is and what he did through our lives. That's what a saint is. Romans chapter 8, of 1, 8, 15 that we just read says, I believe Paul was a great Christian. He himself wrote in one of his letters to be imitators of me. Now, I, I've read that a lot of times. I thought, well, that sounds quite arrogant, doesn't it? Paul's telling the church to be imitators of me. Well, not me, but him. He's saying, you need to look at what I do and do it. And, you know, that used to really bother me. So what, what's he saying to us? What's he telling us to do? I want you to imitate me. The reason he could say that was because Jesus Christ was living in him. And there was no doubt about it. They did not have a New Testament, so they had to trust what they had in front of them, which was Paul writing these letters, and other Christians for that matter. But they had to see that I can trust that person for the life that I'm to live. So, so what did Paul have? Number one, he had a grateful heart. A saint has a thankful heart. That's how he begins. Verse 8, again, says, First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for you all that your faith is spoken of, spoken of throughout all the world. Now, let me back up one time and show you something that's very important in this passage. Did you see what Paul, what Paul just wrote? Paul had to be a Texan. He said, he thanks God for you all. That's Texan talk there. I don't know if that's quite accurate or not, but we'll, we'll, we'll go with it anyway, since most of us are Texans now, at least. But it's he knew a number of them that he was speaking to, but he didn't know everybody. and But most of them he didn't know. And so what he says, this group of believers from Rome had a lot of faith, and so he said, I thank you for your faith that you've shown. By the way, wouldn't it be great to have somebody come off the street and say something like that to Robertson Avenue Baptist Church, I thank you for your faith. It's made a difference in our lives. I'm sure that's happened over the years, but wouldn't it be great to see it happen more often? That's what is in the heart of a grateful of a grateful heart of a believer. Oh, I've heard about Robertson Avenue Baptist Church. I thank God for the faith you people have, is what he was saying to us. How thankful are you? 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 8 says, In everything give thanks, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus to you. Now, you know, I've had people, in fact, probably the number one question I've been asked over the years, how can I find God's will for my life? Did you hear what he just said? Right there it is. Listen to it again. 1 Thessalonians five eighteen, In everything give thanks, 
For this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. That's all it takes. If you want to know God's will, be giving, begin giving thanks in everything you do. Watch it begin to build in your life. In all circumstances, it's God's will that you and me are to give thanks in all circumstances. You mean when I have to go to the hospital, I'm supposed to be thankful for it? Yeah. God's seeing you through. You mean when I have financial difficulties in my life, I'm supposed to be thankful for it? Absolutely. Listen to that word. These are not my words. Listen to what he's saying. In everything give thanks, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. I'm not talking about, you know, when something goes bad and we just have this little heart test and all of a sudden I'm talking about an arteriogram or a catheterization or something like that. Uh, that determines the, determines the condition of the pumping organ in our chest. Your heart is the center of your life. And that's what God's saying. In everything, give thanks. The second thing, am I giving thanks in all things? Here's question number two of the heart test. Am I giving thanks in all things? That's for you to answer. I can't speak for you. I don't know what you're going through. I don't know where you're at. But the key there to giving thanks is because there is a big difference between feeling thankful and giving or expressing thanks. God says, in all things give thanks. I know a lot of Christians that walk home, well, go home, not necessarily walk home, take this Bible and pitch on the coffee table and it doesn't move until next Sunday morning. Even in our churches. Is that giving thanks? Oh, yeah, if something happens, we get on our knees, we get serious then. But yet, God says, in all things, in everything, give thanks. For this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Paul could have picked out all the bad things about living in Rome because they had many problems. Slavery, pornography, unemployment, divorce, drug abuse, alcoholism, you name it, Rome had it. It was a depraved city in many, many ways. He could have talked about all these things, but he says, I just thank God for the good things I'm hearing about your church. Wow. Wouldn't that be neat to have Paul walk in the door and say, I just thank God for this church sitting here. What a difference y'all have made. The second thing we see, a praying heart. A heart is characterized by a heart of prayer. If you look at the last part of verse six, of nine, uh, last part of verse nine, he says that without ceasing I make mention of you always in my prayers. Now I think Paul was a pretty honest guy. I don't believe he would have wrote those words if he did, wasn't telling the truth. He remembered these people. Now I don't know about you, but I've done this many times, and I, I hate to admit that, but I've done it. Somebody will come up to me and ask me, "Would you remember us in prayer this week?" And I'll get busy, and next Sunday I'll think about, oh, my goodness, I'm supposed to pray for her. Because we get busy in life, and we lose sight of what God's wanting for us. In all things, give thanks. Sometimes when people hear this idea about praying without ceasing, they just cannot understand it. Because to some people, prayer is an act. Bow your head, close your eyes for 
perhaps get on your knees. But for people who really know Jesus, prayer is not just an act. It's the constant attitude of what you're going through. Everything that comes up ought to be taken with prayer. For some people, prayer is a religious ritual. You go through whether you're kneeling or going to do some kind of motions or lace it, prostate perhaps, whatever it is. That's between you and God. And he says, whatever position you get in where you can get close to me, get in that position. Now, I think most would probably be kneeling, kneeling at an altar, kneeling at home, kneeling on the couch, whatever it is. That's, that's between you and God. It's nobody else's business there. For the Apostle Paul, it was just part of his ongoing relationship with God, and it was as natural as taking the next step, next step when you walk. It just fell into place for him. Because he prayed constantly. And so that's why he, when it says that he prayed for him, he prayed for him. He said, I'm praying for you. There's a, great, there's a great verse in Philippians chapter 4, verse 6 that says this. Be anxious, anxious for nothing. That means don't worry. Now, I know I'm talking to a lot of common people. And we get nervous when something happens in our life. Do we quit praying? A lot of times, yeah. Hopefully not, but we do. We get so anxious about what's coming up, this test I've got, this thing that's going on, this class at school, and whatever it could be. We get so anxious about it, we begin to worry about it. And God says, don't worry. Let me take care of it. When the Bible says on the extreme you have worry and anxiety, and on the other extreme, you have prayer, prayer of faith, prayer of thanksgivings. The truth is, when you worry, it's impossible for you to pray. But when you're praying, it's impossible for you to worry. Try it sometimes. Do I pray more than I worry? Here's your heart test. Do I pray more than I worry? Only you can answer that question. Let me make it a little easier. What if God sent an angel down, unaware to you, and this angel followed you around 24 hours a day? Every moment you worried, the angel wrote it down. For every moment you prayed, the angel also wrote it down. At the end of 24 hours, would there be more in the worry column or the prayer column? See, when we really look at how much we pray, sometimes we don't quite meet what it needs to be. Only you can answer that prayer. The Bible says, do not be anxious about anything, but pray, pray, pray. But we all worry, don't we? And yes, I'm in that number two. People ask me sometimes if I think worry is a sin. Absolutely I do. I think worry is a sin. In fact, I believe it's the number one sin committed by people who call themselves Christians. Because God tells us, don't worry. But we do, every one of us. I've known people who say something like this. Just love the Lord, but they worry about their finances. They worry about their health. Oh, but all you need to do is love the Lord more. They worry about their families. Every time you worry, what you're saying is, God, you're a liar. You're saying God cannot be trusted. 
when you worry instead of pray. For Christians. God said, I'll never leave you or forsake you. God says, I'll always give you the strength that you need. God, grace is sufficient. My grace is sufficient. And every time you worry, you say, no, God, I can't trust what you're just leading me into. I can't trust you. Some of you have heard the story about the worry wart. He worried about everything. His brow was all ruffled because he worried so much. One Monday, he came to work, and suddenly he had a smile across his face. His step was higher. I mean, he just seemed like he was in a great mood. One of his co-workers says, man, what's different about you? He said, you used to have that face, you, just like he's worried constantly. He said, well, you won't believe it, but I hired a guy to worry for me. He said, you hired somebody to worry for you? What are you talking about? He says, this guy does all my worrying for him, for me. He said, how much you pay him? He said, $3,000 a week. He said, 3000 You don't even make that much. He said, that's his worry. That's what some of us need to do sometimes. The truth is, you have somebody, the Bible says, so you don't have to worry. You have to pray. Paul was not a warrior. He was a prayer. And he prayed constantly. We need to emulate Paul in a lot of ways. The third thing we see is a a submissive heart. He also had a submissive heart. He submitted to the will of God. Look at that last part of verse 10 that we just read. Making requests, that's prayers, if by some means now at last I, I may find my way in the will of God to come to you. Paul wanted to go to Rome. He wanted to, but he had that little nagging problem of being in jail. For two years, over two years, he was in the prison. But guess what he finally got to do? He got to go to Rome as a prisoner. And go back and check how much God blessed that trip. Even though he was a prisoner, he got to speak to many people. And so God did exactly what he told him. said, you can go to Rome. But he also made it a way that was a little different from Paul. Paul probably didn't want to go that way, but at least he did what he got to do. Submissive heart. If it's God's will, that ought to be our desire. To do only those things which are God's will. I like what the psalmist says in Psalms 40 verse 8. I will delight I will delight to do your will, O my God. And your law is within my heart. Do I ask frequently, is this God's will for my life? Sometimes it's our desires. It's not necessarily God's will. The story of David's a prime example. Was it God's desire that he did that? No, that was his desire. But he did it anyway. In other words, whenever you're faced with a decision, it doesn't have to be a major one. Do you ever stop and say, is this God's will for my life, really? For you who have gone through the study, I know you all gone through it before in the past. It's called experiencing God. Everybody, have many people been through that? I know there's some. That's one of the best studies you'll ever do, seriously. And it's all about it. Uh, Henry Blackaby wrote the book, him and another guy, but here's what he says. 
Henry Blackaby's writing this. He says, when Henry Blackaby says that most Christians ask the wrong question, the wrong question is, what is God's will for my life? Now you say, well, what's wrong with that question? That sounds pretty good to me. Well, that sounds pretty good, but it sounds pretty spiritual. What's wrong with it? In other words, what is God's will? That's the big question. Not what's God's will for my life. What is God's will for me, period? You see, it's a whole lot of difference when you break it down that way. God's will doesn't matter what I choose or I want. Paul wanted to go to Rome, but he couldn't go. He was in a jail cell. And for over two years, he sat in that cell. And I'm sure it wasn't fun times. It was harsh. Can't you imagine as he prayed, being the prayer that he was, prayer that he was God, what are you doing to me? We had these plans to go to Rome. You told me that's where I need to go. But for two and a half years, he waited. And finally, he went on a slave ship, slaves of the government. But he made it to Rome. And if you look back, you'll find many great things that happened with it. I'll show you without a doubt that the opposite is true here. Well, let me, let me back up just a second, Bill. Have you ever heard people say something like when a tornado runs through town? Well, you know, well, that was just God's will. That's not God's will. I mean, it can be some, sometimes God can use things like that. But it's the model prayer says, Our Father which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. And then it goes on, By kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Now, everything that happens in heaven is God's will. You all agree about that? Everything that happens is God's will in heaven. But not everything that happens on earth is God's will. You say, well, how can they get out of the way of it? Everything that happens is not God's will specifically. We have to pray for things to happen. And then we have to obey God's will so his will is done on earth. So Paul was the kind of guy who submitted to the will of God, and that is what we ought to be doing ourselves, submitting to God's will in everything he does. The fourth thing, real quickly. Paul had what we'd call a giving heart. That's a good trait to have, an unselfish heart. Look at Romans 1.1, if you still got it open. For I long to see you that I may impart to you some spiritual gift so that you may be established. What is he talking about? What he was saying was, I want to come to Rome because I want to give you something. He says, what I want to give you is a spiritual gift, a spiritual gift. When you read that term spiritual gift, some people say, well, I'm, I'm thinking about spiritual gifts like the gift of teaching, the gift of lessons and so forth and all the different kinds. But that's not what he's talking about. In fact, he says, well, I'm thinking about spiritual gift of the gift of teaching, the gift of that. Romans 1.12 and 1 Corinthians says, is that the gift he's talking about? No, it's not. Only the Holy Spirit gives those kind of gifts. Paul is used, just using the word spiritual gifts to contrast it with material gifts. What he's saying is Paul is, desires to come to you that he may encourage us while we encourage him. Isn't that what a church is supposed to do? Don't we need to encourage people in our church? We have people sitting right here right now that have gone through challenges. And they're still not out of them. 
But we need to encourage them. And that's what Paul was saying to him. He knew he couldn't go being a prisoner, but the people could come to him, and he would encourage them through the different needs that they had. And probably had communicated with them, and the letters they wrote back to him, he was probably receiving and saying that, well, this couple over here has this problem, this going on and so forth, and this lady has this disease and what have you. And Paul was coming to be an encouragement to them. And that's exactly what we need to be to each other. We need to encourage each other. The whole reason we come to church is to give encouragement to others. You agree with that statement? I found myself not wanting to agree with it. But the more I thought about it, he's right. Encourage somebody to accept Christ. Encourage somebody in their trials they're going through. Encourage somebody. So the times we come to church, the number one reason, the main thing, is to give encouragement to other people. Well, I know these people. They've been here for 20 years. They still need encouragement. And God says we're to encourage them. Acts chapter 20, verse 35 says, I have shown you in every way by laboring like this that you must support the weak and remember the words of the Lord Jesus that he said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. Paul says, I want to come to Rome and give you something. Am I in the church to give something or to get something? What do you really come to church for? Just to get something or to give something? Are you ready for the heart test? Am I in church to give or to get? I've pastored through the years, and I've sometimes talked to people disgruntled, and they drop out of church and uh, sometimes never be seen again. But I've had the opportunity over the years to talk to several of them after they dropped out for different reasons. And usually this is the answer you get. Oh, I just don't get anything out of it anymore. Ever heard those words? Well, let me ask you, what are you putting into it? How can you get something out of it if you don't put anything into it? I like to go to the bank over here, put my little card in, and get my $10 a week that Judy gives me. And, boy, I feel proud. But, you know, if I don't put something in that, I don't get to get anything out of that. And a church should be the same way. There ought to be something that you give. You say, well, I don't have any talents. I can't teach. I can't sing. I can't play the instrument. I can't play the guitar or the keyboard or whatever. Oh, but there's things you can do. Are you using them for God's glory? We have classes that need substitute teachers. We have classes that need another teacher in there. What are you doing? Oh, I just I couldn't do that. What do you mean you couldn't? If God gives you the ability, you can, and you can do it good. Let's close this out here. Romans 1.13 says, Now I do not want you to be unaware, brethren, that I often planned to come to you, but was hindered until now. Again, Paul was wanting to go to Rome. He'd never been to Rome, but I want to come to Rome. I've planned it many times, but for some reason the trip always gets changed. By the way, it's misleading when he says, I've been hindered, prevented, because... Uh, he was locked up. He couldn't go. I mean, he didn't have a choice about it. He wanted to go, but he couldn't do it. But yet, at the same time, time God wasn't ready for him to go. And then we close with this. An obligated heart is what Paul had. There's one final characteristic I want you to see. Paul had an obligated heart. We see in Romans 1.14, I am a debtor to both the Greeks and the barbarians, both to the wise and the unwise. Unwise, excuse me. 
because he is obligated, what's he going to do? He tells us in Romans 1.15, So as much as in me I am ready to preach the gospel to who, to you who are in Rome also. He says, I don't care if I come in chains and locks. I'm still going to get to preach the gospel. I still want to do that. I want to finish today by asking you this heart question one more time. Do I give credit to those who have helped me through the years? Am I actively giving them credit for what they did? I came across this story the other day from the Vietnam War. I presume it's true. That's the way it sounded, so I'm going to repeat it that way. During the Vietnam War, there was a fighter pilot named Charles Plum. He flew fighter jets off the aircraft carrier Kitty Hawk. He flew 75 successful missions. On his 76th mission, his fighter jet was tar- the target of surface-to-air missiles, and he and a jet exploded in flames. He pulled the ejector just in time and popped out in the airplane, and his parachute deployed, and he floated safely to the ground, uninjured. But in the in the but he landed in the middle of enemy territory. He wondered at times if he would even survive being a prisoner of war. But he did. When the war was over, he was united with his family and became a successful businessman and later a national motivational speaker. One evening, not too many years ago, he was in a restaurant in Southern California, and a man at a table next to him, whom he did not recognize, turned and said, Hey, you're Charles Plum, aren't you? You flew a fighter jet off Kitty, off the Kitty Hawk carrier, didn't you? And he said yes to both of them. Charles said, "That's right. How do you how do you know me?" The man says, "You don't know this, but before every mission you flew, I was the man who packed your parachute. I guess it worked, didn't it?" Charles Plum said, "Yes, it did. Yes, it did. I guess I'm alive because of you." They spoke, and Charles Plum went back and sat down to eat his dinner and. Uh, he couldn't, uh, but he couldn't eat. He kept talking about talking about this guy over the table, who had saved his life, and he didn't even know it. He began to think about his days back on the Kitty Hawk, and he said there were probably times as a sailor that where he never once said hello or good morning to this young man, or even introduced himself, because he was a great big fighter pilot, and this guy was just a lowly sailor. That's man's. But then he said, a few minutes later, he thought about how that man packing his parachute had saved his life. Then an emotional, uh, then he thought about all those POWs camp, at, uh, all those days in the POW camp, excuse me, and how he also needed emotional parachute to survive the loneliness. He thought how his family had really packed his emotional parachute and to prepare him for those days of separation. He thought about the moral, mental parachute to prepare him for for what was going to be the brutal obligations and interrogation. Then he thought about how many people there are who who most valuably packed his spiritual parachute because he said the one that kept us going in prison was our faith in God. He thought about those preachers, Sunday school teachers, who packed his spiritual parachute even as a young boy. Suddenly he realized he had never expressed thanks to any one of those people. So he got up and went over to that guy, and he said, Listen, man, I'm sorry I never told you, but I just want to thank you for saving my life. 
he bought his dinner. As soon as he got back to his table, he sat down and wrote a letter to every family that he could think of, telling them he wanted to thank them for helping pack his emotional parachute. And he put the end of each one of them, I don't know if I'd be here today if you hadn't helped. Have you ever had somebody that you've helped through something or helped you through something? That's the emotional parachute. I don't know what it's got you through. I know in my life what it got me through. I can look back on the three men that decided that this young man needed Jesus Christ. I wasn't worthy of it. But they decided they needed to do something about me. And for over a year, those three men never gave up. They kept after me. And to this day, I drive by that house in Fort Worth where one of them lived. And I can still remember that Friday night in the summer where all of a sudden I sat in a curb down in Fort Worth, Texas. I wouldn't think about suicide. I didn't have the courage to do that. But I was down in the dumps. I'd lost my possibility to play baseball. I'd messed everything in my life up. And I decided, this one man said, anytime you ever need to talk, come down. And I know I've shared this before. I walked down the street to this man's house, rang the doorbell. A young teenager answered the door. He was right behind her, and he says, oh, we've been expecting you. I said, expecting me? I didn't even know I was coming. <laughs> and right there in the, his bedroom, I bowed on my knees beside his bed and accepted Jesus Christ in my life. And old things haven't been since, son. They haven't been the same since. I'm not perfect. In fact, I'm a long ways from it. But I know this. My parachute has been prepared by a lot of folks. Is yours? Let's stand this morning. Dear God, we thank you, Lord, for this time we're together. Lord, as we come to close the service, I know we're a few minutes over now, Lord, but I still believe you've got some work you want to do here this morning. Maybe there's somebody here. Maybe there's a boy or a girl, a teenager, young adult, an older adult that you've been fighting the fight all these years and you've never given in. Maybe today is the day for you. As I've said before, you can walk out of this building, you can take your fist, you can shake it in God's face and say, God, in case I haven't told you lately, I hate you, God. And God's only response to you would be, oh, but I love you. Don't leave this building without him. There's no guarantee of next week coming back for any of us. We're just going to sing very shortly. I know we're over time, but this verse is for you. You can come down and use these steps. You can speak to our deacons on the side here, whatever it needs to be. But don't leave here without Jesus. It's too costly. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.